Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Deb Blaschenberg, and welcome to Yoga Birth Babies. I'm so excited to introduce you to Deborah Flowers from the Farm Midwifery Center. Let me give you a little bit about Deborah's background. So Deborah Flowers is a certified professional midwife who was trained at the farm in Summertown, Tennessee, and has been practicing midwifery there for 33 years. Deborah moved to the farm with her husband in 1973. Both of her children were born on the farm, and she had the honor of being the midwife at the births of her four grandchildren. After Deborah had been a midwife for 12 years, she went to school to get her RN, her registered nurse license. While practicing on the farm as a midwife, she also worked at the local hospital and the Well Baby Nursery and the NICU, the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Sixteen years ago, she was hired by UNICEF to train 14 Mayan birth attendants in Belize, and Deborah is currently practicing at the Farm Midwifery Center. So I'm so happy. Welcome, Deborah. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Well, I'm very happy to be here. So reaching out to you at the farm was really, um, it was, I was kind of nervous, actually, because I remember going to the farm, must be like eight or nine years ago. And I remember arriving there. I did the midwifery assistant program. And the only thing I can think of is like when my son went to Disney World and I saw his face when he saw Mickey for the first time. That's kind of how I felt about going to the farm. You know, I'd read about it and just kind of this folklore amongst birth workers. So to go was really wonderful. And for you to take the time to speak to me and our community about the farm is really special. So let's jump into a little bit about for those that don't know, because, you know, we have not just birth workers that listen, but our community of students, can you explain what the farm is and how it came about? Okay. Well, the farm is an intentional community, and it started out as a commune um, back in 1971. And even before that, um, back in San Francisco, there were students that got together and to talk about what their beliefs were about all kinds of things. And Stephen Gaskin was a professor at the time, and they had a a free university, so they met at night, and he became the the main spokesperson at the group. Um, It got Mm well-known, and... Um, he was asked to go speak at other colleges around the country. So when some of the members or the the people who were um, attending the night class, it was called Monday night class, Mm -hmm. when they heard that Stephen was going to leave to go on the speaking engagement, they decided to go with him. So people got school buses and fixed them up to be um, something they could live in. And everybody took off and, followed Stephen to all these colleges across the country. Well, it turned out that there were about 10 women who were pregnant who were um, part of that caravan. And at that time, none of them were midwives. I think they had some books that they could you know, read um, with some information in it. And um, the first birth, everything went very smoothly. The father caught the baby 
and they continued to have more births. And at some of those births, there were some complications. And luckily, they ran into a doctor along the way who gave them some classes and some supplies and his phone number and said, you can call us anytime or call me anytime if you need help. Um, so then after going on that caravan, they were pretty bonded to each other and they didn't want it to be over. And they felt like they wanted to sort of live what they'd been talking about mm-hmm. and decided to buy some land. And it turned out that they found land in Tennessee. So that's where they ended up settling and initially bought a thousand acres and later bought 700 more. Wow. Yeah. And there was only one house on the whole piece of land. So everybody lived in their buses at first. When I was there, the buses were still there. Are they still there now? Well, there were a few still there. Um, A lot of them are gone now, but we've kept a few just sort of um, as part of our history Uh (laughs) for people to see. And the next um, step up in housing was to build a foundation and then put an army tent up on it. And some of the guys had trouble standing in the buses. You know, they were always having to hunch over. Mm -hmm. So it was nice to have something that they could stand up in. And then some of those army tents then the following year got turned into houses. And so gradually, little by little, houses have been built. And now we have very nice houses that most people um, live in. So we've, we've come up in the world in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. What else would you like to know? No, about that's perfect. That's so. Part. Okay. That's great. So, can you talk a little bit about how you talked about that you were supported by a doctor? Um, how did the other foreign midwives, as you guys were joining, you know, you joined there two years later, how did you hone your skills exactly? Was it just kind of practice and learning and watching? And was there any backlash from the OBs in the area that since you were in a very different mindset than your typical OB? Well, one thing that I think was unique about how the farm midwives developed their style of midwifery was the fact that on the caravan, some of the women who became the midwives were also pregnant. So you might one day be helping somebody else who was having a baby And then a few days later, you might be in labor and they would be helping you. So you really got to feel what it was like to be on both the receiving end of care as well as being the provider of the care. And that helped the midwives learn what things worked, what things mattered to women when they were in labor. Um, you know, things like how they were touched and how they were talked to and even who was present, Mm -hmm. not having people there that didn't serve a purpose. Because sometimes people want to be at a birth just because they've never seen a birth before, you know, so they're sort of a gawker. And sometimes that slowed labor down for the woman in labor. So 
I think during that time they were paying attention to what what seemed to work and what maybe didn't work so well or or what the women didn't like. So that was maybe more the the spiritual side of things. And then as far as the more medical side, they did get help from doctors as well as looking in obstetric books and reading about uh, different complications and things. I know when I started apprenticing, what helped me a lot was to read about something after I saw it. Okay. So I might be at a birth observing and maybe the mother hemorrhaged or there was a shoulder dystocia or, or something like that. And because I was the apprentice, I wasn't the person who had to deal with it, you know, so I could watch the midwives and see what they did and then go home. And this was before the Internet. So, <laughs> you know, you'd have to uh, look things up in books and read about it. And then it meant so much more to me. I was able to remember it better. Oh, you had because, context. Right. I had a, a real person to connect it to. And I remember um, Pamela telling me a story about one day she was reading in a book about a uterine prolapse. And then the next birth she went to, there was a uterine prolapse. You know, so she knew what to do because she had just read about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so for the first midwives, they, I think they had some angels watching over them. Because there was definitely some magic like that that happened. And, you know, and then since I came along later, I was lucky to be able to um, learn from them. And what brought you there a couple years after the start? Well, my husband and I, we were interested in going back to the land, uh, growing our own food, doing that kind of thing. And also, when I got pregnant the first time, I knew that I wanted to have my baby at home, but I had never heard of any midwives except for the midwives on the farm. And I didn't feel like it would be safe for my husband and I to try to do it by ourselves without someone there that knew more than we did. I I don't think I would have been comfortable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of hard to relax and open up if you're not comfortable, if if you're afraid. (coughs) Excuse me. So it, you know, I just, I just knew that I would feel comfortable being somewhere where there were people that were trained and knew more, you know, than I did. So it was kind of a combination of the community itself and the midwifery that was what was attractive to us. That's great. So as things were percolating there and you guys did have help from other OBs, were there anyone in the community or any part of the community that wasn't accepting and supportive of what you were bringing? Well, the community of the farm was oh, very off supportive. Off the farm. Like the, but you know. off the farm, um, You know, well, we were lucky because one of the doctors that sort of took us under our wing was Dr. Williams, Mm -hmm. and he had been working in the Amish community, Mm -hmm. so he went to home births for them and delivered babies at home. So that wasn't a foreign concept to him. 
And he was a very respected doctor in the community and in the local hospital. He also would come to the farm to teach. And when we first started doing some breech births, I think the first few breech births took place in the hospital with him as the doctor and the midwives there observing. And then he started coming to the farm and being a support person for the midwives. He said, you know, you need to, you all need to learn how to do this yourself. And then after a while, he said, you don't need to call me anymore. So he's like unless a mentor. Yes, he very much was a mentor. That's such a blessing that you guys had that. Can you explain the difference between the midwifery model of care and that of the traditional, more pathological model? I guess more, even more specifically, the farm midwifery model, because I think that even differs from a traditional midwifery model, at least what I, I see here in the city. Okay. Well, one of the things is I think we try to involve the pregnant woman in decision-making about her care during the pregnancy and during the birth. There's maybe if it was a very dire emergency, we might have to just act. But usually there's time to discuss things with her, mm-hmm. even if if we're maybe starting to think about a transport or something. We're going to be talking it over before we do it. So she really um, is a part of the team and a part of the decision making I think also we're more likely to wait until her body goes into labor on its own as opposed to inducing, you know, we're, we're not going to say, oh, it's 39 weeks. Let's schedule an induction. You know, let's, let's get this baby born. Um, occasionally, if somebody's going more than 42 weeks past her due date, then we might, you know, have to start thinking about natural ways to get things going. We also tend to let the water release on its own as opposed to doing artificial rupture membranes. Um, You know, I think basically we believe that a woman's body works and that birth is a natural process and that no two births are the same. Sometimes I feel like in hospitals, some of the, the protocols and things that they do is almost like trying to make every birth the same. Mm hmm. And and even even there you can't, although it's maybe it follows a more um, scheduled, you know, events. But, um, you know, I feel like birth is exciting and each birth is different. And part of what happens is we that unfolds. We get to see what is this birth going to be like? You know, how is what is this woman going to teach us? What is she going to do different than we've ever seen before? And if, if you allow women, um, you know, to follow their instincts and trust in their body, then I think you get to see things that um, maybe when you're trying to control it, you don't get to see. And, and women's bodies are amazing. So you get to see amazing things. So after all the births you attended, do you still get surprised by anything? Sometimes, yeah. And that, you know, that's what's uh, um, fun about, you know, births. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of some other things. Um, oh, uh, you know, we aren't going to have people walk in on a mother who's in labor that she's never met before. You, um 
you know, occasionally there might be a need to have, if a midwife got sick or was at another birth or something, to bring in somebody that maybe originally was not scheduled to be part of the birth team, but she's met them. You know, during her prenatal care, she's going to meet all of us and our apprentices. So I think that helps a woman to be able to relax in labor when she's not on edge and doesn't feel like at any moment somebody, a stranger, a student or something might walk in the door. Um, Of course, we encourage her to have who she wants at the birth, her partner, um, maybe a family member. And when people are comfortable with who's who's there at the birth, that helps things, you know, go more smoothly. I absolutely agree. I feel like, you know, having, I was a doula for a little over 10 years and I tend to little over a hundred births at that time. And I definitely could see in the women when a stranger or a new doctor or whoever came in, the woman physically changed in the way she was holding herself and the way she was breathing because birth is a very exposed and vulnerable experience. And as you know, and Ina May talks about in, her, some, in some of her books like this, the sphincter laws, you can't open up if you're feeling pressured or judged or scheduled. Um, and just the appearance of a person not in the woman's space, you know, that she knows, really, I really see it. I call it circling the wagons when the people that should support her protect her from those other people that don't need to be in the space. So I would love to talk a little bit about the birth statistics. Now, you had sent me some new ones because the ones I saw online only went up to 2010. Um, Approximately how many births do you think have been done at the farm at this point? I think it's about 3,400. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, we are getting our statistics updated, so hopefully soon we'll have the the full... um, details on everything. I think what I sent you um, was limited. It it didn't have everything. (laughs) But pretty much what we find is that things haven't changed that much as far as our percentage of transports, um, about how many women end up with a C-section, and things like that. Yeah, what I saw online, granted this was from 2010, um, and I'm glad to hear things haven't really changed, but you guys have a 2% cesarean rate, and it looked like there was a 96% successful VBAC rate, 1.7% of postpartum hemorrhage. I mean, these are pretty significant numbers when you look at the comparison to the rest of the country. Um, So I'm not really even sure, and these are some amazing facts, I'm not even sure really how to talk about this question, except... Do you think it's just because it's a woman-centered birth that you guys work on that's a, that gives that produces such healthy healthy births, especially the cesarean rate? I mean, compared to the rest of the country, that's hovering at around thirty-three. Your you know the farm is at two percent. So, what do you think that's about? Well, I think what you said about it being a woman-centered um, birth approach is you know sums it up pretty well. Just what I was talking about, about the, the midwives going to each other's births in the beginning and really learning what matters to women when they're in labor and, and how to treat women and what works 
along those lines. Also, we do things like we have very long prenatal appointments, sometimes two or three hours, wow. especially wow. the first one or two. Uh, we allow enough time to be able to answer people's questions, sometimes even talk about things that have nothing to do with childbirth. Because during that time, during the prenatal period, the midwife and the pregnant woman and her partner, they're all getting to know each other, or you know, I'm getting to know them. And she's getting to know me and trust me, and we're becoming friends. And some of those things are what we use in labor instead of pain medicine. Because that trust and that friendship is what's going to get her through labor. And in some cases, maybe she's a single mom. So she's going to you know, rely on us even more and that friendship. So, you know, that, that's certainly one of the things that I think um, helps. Um, you know, we encourage the... Um, the woman when she is in labor to be affectionate with her partner and that helps get those oxytocin, you know, hormones and, and everything going, which I mean, birth is sexual or, or when it is sexual, it helps things go better. It helps get those endorphins going too. Well, I think that it has the potential to be sexual. When you put it in a hospital setting, I think it doesn't like, I just was doing a, a childbirth ed class with a couple last night, and I talked about that being a pain management technique, and you know, get the hormones going. And they laughed; they kind of laughed at me. And I said, "You know, I'm not expecting you to, you know, full on have intercourse in the hospital, but can you cuddle with one another? Can you be affectionate?" And I feel like in most hospital settings, it feels so sterile and there's so many people in and out that it doesn't even occur to people to involve that. But you're absolutely right. And it is the same hormone. You know, it is that affection, that love, that connection, that safety, I feel a partner can bring that can really help a woman. And it's, and I learned that from, from what I read about the farm. So you guys have taught many, many people. Well, and you're right. It does, even though sometimes making love can be what will get the labor started, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be. Um, it, it can be kissing, cuddling, or, you know, the partner whispering sweet nothings <laughs> in the woman's ear or um, telling her how beautiful she looks, what a good job she's doing, you know, gazing in each other's eyes. All of those things can be um, sexy and can help those hormones get released. And, yeah, in a hospital it can be harder. But the, the nurses are usually aren't in the room all the time. Right. And you can often pull the curtain <laughs> and manage to find some time to try to Connect. try to make that happen as much as you can. Um, you know, so we encourage that. We also encourage movement in labor, which sometimes is harder to do in a hospital because you're hooked up to all the monitors and IVs and, and all that. Um, of course, these are some of the reasons that we like um, home birth and, and out-of-hospital birth or center birth. Sometimes you're able to be off the monitor more. 
And that's always something that the woman can ask ahead of time, ask her care provider if it is a hospital setting, if labor is um, going well, there's not any fetal distress, and if she's um, hopefully in labor naturally, will she be allowed to come off the monitor and do some walking and squatting, sitting on a birth ball, dancing, you know, things that can help labor progress. Um, you know, we also, we consult with doctors if we feel like we need to, you know, during the woman's pregnancy or even in labor. Um, it, it might be helpful to get a non-stress test or a biophysical profile just to make sure that everything's okay with the baby. We had a mom who came here a couple of months ago. Her and her husband had been uh, living in China for the last four and a half years. And when she became pregnant, she decided she wanted to come back to the States to have her baby. So she wrote to the farm and we communicated by email throughout her pregnancy. And then she... Um, when she first got back to the United States, she went to a, a nurse midwife near where where they were going to be living. And um, she got an ultrasound, and they said that her placenta was calcified. And they had concerns about whether or not it was safe to come to the farm and have her baby. So I consulted with some some doctors that I know. Uh, one of them is a doctor who, when she was in medical school to become an OG, OBGYN and married to one of her classmates, they came to the farm to have their first baby. Okay. And I often will consult with her when I have a question. I also talk to some ultrasound technicians I know and um, they gave me some suggestions about what to ask and be sure about to make sure it was going to be safe for her to come here. And one of those things was to get some non-stress tests and biophysical profile done, which we did. After she arrived here, I took her to a backup doctor and we did those things and everything kept looking good. So we decided it was okay for her to deliver here. She had a nice birth. Everything went well. And, um, you know, that's something that I think unfortunately happens too much in our country that women receive prenatal scare <laughs> instead of prenatal care. Yes. <laughs> I agree. You know, she also, I think she was maybe 37 years old. So, you know, that, that was mentioned as well that she was um, a higher risk client because of her age. And most of the time, I'm not that concerned about somebody's age, especially if they're taking good care of themselves, they're eating well, and everything else is good. And in her case, um, Actually, I found out that a lot of practitioners don't believe that a calcified placenta means anything, that that's not something to be concerned about. So 
she was really, um, you know, not as high risk as they were trying to make her feel Mm -hmm. like she was. And she told me later that that was difficult for her, that they did scare her. And it, that was something that she had to work through when she was in labor, but being here helped her a lot. And the fact that I wasn't nervous about it. Well, I think you just touched on something huge is you guys are very, you feel very confident in your skills. And it's also great that other people in here that when you don't know of something, you take the time to educate yourself. But when I, you know, I've read a lot of the birth stories, I've visited the firm. When I look at the pictures and just think about the care you give, it's so supportive and loving. And you're coming at this with a place of confidence. I think that's a major difference than a, quote, typical birth. You know, there's a sense of trust and with the midwives to the woman and the woman to the midwives that I don't know it's present in a lot of more traditional births that you see. You know, there's not a pressure of schedule. There's not who am I going to get in the room. Is There's not the sense that oh, I, from the practitioner... I don't know if her body can do this or fear from them. Like I just had, again, the clients I worked with recently, the woman has gestational diabetes, so they want to induce her early at 39 weeks because they keep saying, you know, baby's going to be too big. We're scared of shoulder dystocia. And you guys don't seem to come with that same concern of fear. It's more like we're going to watch, see what happens, and then act if something comes up as opposed to something might happen and we're going to try to prevent it. So I think that's, that sounds like one of the main reasons, just your approach, why your statistics are stunningly amazing. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think that makes sense. Um, let's see. There, were, I know there was something you said in there that I was going to comment on. and now Always <laughs> jump in and interrupt me. If, you, if I'm rambling too much, jump in and interrupt me. <laughs> Well, you mentioned um, the gestational diabetes, Mm -hmm. and occasionally we take care of somebody who um, is having maybe a mild form of gestational diabetes, and we do a lot of diet counseling. We have them check their blood sugar every day, and I I actually, the next person I have due is um, in this situation. And she is doing so well with controlling her blood sugar and so that I'm not worried about her at all. And I think that that's one of the things that has helped is that when you have women who are devoted and dedicated, you know, they want to have a home birth, they will take better care of themselves and if they don't, then probably we can't, you know, it's not safe for them to have their baby here. And we would have to tell them that. What would risk so the women, out? You know, it, it's, it's a lot of it is up to the woman herself. You know, I think sometimes in pregnancy, women think, oh, you know, the baby's growing inside of me. I have no control over anything that my care provider is the one who is is in charge. And I just you know, leave it all up to them and everything will work out. But actually, there's a lot that the pregnant woman can do. 
And sometimes those are lifestyle changes, you know, things like exercising. And it doesn't even have to be real strenuous exercise. It can be going on walks or swimming or maybe um, going and taking a specific pregnancy-related course. Like um, prenatal yoga? Yeah, (laughs) prenatal yoga. Um, There's lots of things out there that pregnant women can do that are specifically tailored to the pregnancy. Also, what you eat, you know, is very important and makes a a huge difference in how you feel while you're pregnant, um, whether or not you develop pregnancy-induced hypertension or gestational diabetes. It could also make a difference in whether or not you can deliver at home. You know, a, a very, very large baby that's maybe not in the greatest position sometimes can't be born vaginally. But if, if the baby's a more average size, then it's, it's easier maybe to, to um, have the mom do some things that helps the position of the baby. Mm-hmm. And then she's maybe a little more likely to push that baby out even if the position isn't perfect, you know, and sometimes that does happen where the baby's head's a little cocked to one side Synclitic, yeah. or, yeah, or they're, they're not in the most ideal position. Of course, I think that's something that midwives are learning a lot more about these days. So, you know, women are doing spinning babies or they're going to the chiropractor or the acupuncturist. And, and, and I really love it when, one of the women I'm taking care of tells me that she's going to the chiropractor. Of course, I, I recommend it. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk to people about it and because I think it can really make a difference. Oh, I swear by it. My first child, <laughs> um, it was a long birth, about 42 hours. Had I been in a hospital, I would have had a C-section, I'm sure. But his head was slightly asynclitic. And I had a home birth midwife and and a doula, and they really worked with me. They did all the spinning babies, the sifting the hips. And I'm convinced it was that skill and the time that created the the time for my baby to turn and, and position himself well. So for baby number two... I was at the chiropractor week 36 getting, you know, the pelvis aligned, getting the uterus aligned because I really, I learned from the, you know, the drama of my first one and the mistakes. And yeah, since then I am all about telling the students, you know, advising them baby position matters, see the chiropractor, see the acupuncturist really work on the preparation, not just the education, but the preparation for birth. So what would risk a woman out of being admitted at the farm for her birth? Okay. Well, we don't deliver insulin dependent diabetics. No, that's not advised. Um, also, in the state of Tennessee, we're not supposed to deliver women who've had more than two previous C-sections. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, uh, even though in the past we've delivered twin and, twins and breaches, and we still do occasionally, but usually it's somebody that's already in our care. Used to people would call uh, towards the end of their pregnancy who lived somewhere else and ask if they could come here when they were having twins or breaches. And... We're not, in most cases, we're not doing that because we don't have that relationship with them that we have with the people that are already in our care. Mm-hmm. And we do um, do some twins and breaches still. 
when you know when it comes up with with our our clients we um might not be able to deliver somebody who has a blood clotting disorder and that that depends on what it is and and how it's being managed so those are those are some of the things that come to mind mm-hmm. and you know like i said before age alone is not something that would risk somebody out. Yeah, I know that's a whole nother topic for me. The whole over thirty-five, and now you're, you know, a, 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 a geriatric pregnancy. I had my second at forty, and someone actually told me, "It's like, oh, it's like an old lady giving birth." I was a little offended by that. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, you know, I think the fact that we have worked with a, a large Amish community mm-hmm. over the years, and they have babies close together for years and years and years until their body just sort of naturally starts spacing them. So it's very common for women in their late forties to still be getting pregnant. And it's also, you know, common for them to have 14 children. So things that sometimes doctors have said midwives shouldn't deliver, like um, if it's past, past baby number five, well, you know, we've been doing it with the Amish or women who are older. We've been doing it with the Amish and they've been doing fine. So I think that's been a, another thing that has taught us over the years is seeing what the Amish can do. Right. And, right. Um, you know, because they're going to keep having babies. They really don't. <laughs> they don't believe in birth control. So. <laughs> I guess clearly with 14 kids, that's, that's right. So I saw that your transfer rate's about 5%. What would be a reason that someone would have to transfer? Well, if during labor and we're monitoring, if the heart rate was dropping and doing things like position changes, giving the mom oxygen, stimulating the baby, um, wasn't changing I mean, because most of the time, if you have some D cells, you can just put the mother in a different position mm-hmm. and find the position that the baby likes. Because mm-hmm. maybe the cord was getting compressed between the baby's head and the mother's pelvis or something like that. You turn her over on it into a. <coughs> Excuse me again. If you turn her into a different position, then the baby starts getting enough oxygen again and it's fine. So. It's a pretty rare thing that we have to transport for that, but it is something that we might transport for if um, we suspected that her placenta might be abrupting, there was some bleeding, more bleeding than normal, that would be an emergency. We would have to, you know, go for that. Sometimes we, we transport for failure to progress. Most of the time, I think, um, we're able to help a woman partly by giving her plenty of time, making suggestions of things to do to help the labor progress. But occasionally there have been some cases where somebody was getting very tired and we got to a point where we felt like, you know, if we went to the hospital right now before you get too exhausted then maybe all it would take would be just a little bit of Pitocin and you'd have this baby and you'd have it vaginally. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if we wait another 24 hours and you're even more exhausted, then you might end up with a C-section. Because I have seen some cases where if a mother was too tired, the Pitocin didn't work either. And, you know, so some, uh, you know, I really feel like the everything the hospital can do, that all those things have been invented for a good reason, even a cesarean. Mm-hmm. And that when you need it, we are so grateful that those things are available to us and that we can take a mother in and get that kind of help when it's needed. But I think that sometimes when you're in the hospital, it gets done too often, gets done when it's not needed, maybe because of um, being on a timeline. And you mentioned before our low C-section rate. And, you know, I don't know if if everybody practiced the same way we did, what, you know, even in hospitals, what their C-section rate would be. I've heard that the World Health Organization says it shouldn't be over 15%. Right. And I, you know, I understand that the people we take care of at home are lower risk. You know, we're delivering babies that are 37 weeks or more. And so, of course, our C-section rate is going to be lower than a hospital's, or, of course, the hospital's going to be higher because they are taking care of the higher-risk people. But I don't think it needs to be as high as it is. It didn't used to be. And one of the things that has made the C-section rate go up so much in hospitals is external fetal monitoring. Um, When external fetal monitoring was invented, the purpose of it was to try to prevent cerebral palsy, which was thought to be caused by the baby not getting enough oxygen to the brain. So by monitoring continuously, it would be caught when a baby was in trouble and something could be done about it. And unfortunately, what turned out was that the cerebral palsy rate did not go down with external fetal monitoring, but the C-section rate went way up. And now it's hard to go back. Mm -hmm. But really in hospitals, they could do intermittent monitoring with a Doppler just like we do at home. It's, It's not necessary to do continuous monitoring. But it's hard to retrain everybody that's, that works in the hospital and they're so used to those monitors. There might be cases where if they were getting D-cells with the intermittent monitoring, then they could put somebody on a continuous monitor. Or if you need to do a non-stress test, you know, there's, there's times when it's appropriate. But um, it really isn't necessary, and I think our statistics show that. We've never done continuous monitoring, and we have very good outcomes. Well, I also think that Pitocin, I don't have the statistics, but vaguely off the top of my head, I remember hearing that Pitocin is used in about 95% of births. So once PIT's introduced, they do have to monitor the baby more. So I do think that if maybe it wasn't quite as used. And you, I mean, just what you said, it's not that we want to demonize medicine, but use it when it's necessary and perhaps it's overly used, which is leading to these statistics. 
Well, Pitocin is used a lot for an induction. If women were allowed to go into labor on their own, and, and also if they were allowed to labor longer. Well, that's where I'm getting at. It's not as much just the induction. It's they still go into labor on their own, but things may not be moving to the expectation of the care provider and a little pits being introduced and a little more pit. But it's it's used a lot. And I just saw some statistics not too long ago, but I do think it was around 90 95% of births um, here in, this, in New York City involve Pitocin, maybe not from a start from scratch induction, but somewhere along the line, it's involved, which right. is really, it's a, that's a high number. So Right. We're not sure what that's doing, you know, what, what all the side effects of that are. I don't know if you've ever watched the DVD Microbirth. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're talking a lot, you know, about, about the bacteria and the human biome. But they also talk about Pitocin and C-sections and just, you know, all those things and how they're impacting human health. Yes. Yeah, I I always feel like the history of obstetrics is not that great. It wasn't that long ago that Cytotech was used for VBACs and we had these ruptured uterus. I think it was the 90s. So it's not till like 20 years after that we're noticing oh, maybe that wasn't the right choice. See, I get a little weary. But again, I don't want to demonize medicine because I do think when necessary, it's so wonderful that we have it. I personally just appreciate the way that midwifery, especially the farm midwifery, really steps back and creates a nurturing, trusting environment so the woman can let herself go into that labor state without pressure, but with the comfort of should something go wrong, I have people here instead of combating what could go wrong and having to negotiate. Um, So how would somebody use your services? So maybe after hearing this or reading some of the books about the farm, it could inspire. I remember after visiting the farm, I came home and told my husband, I'm like, we're having our baby at the farm. And he laughed. Um, (laughs) So how would someone go about and use your services? Well, you can find our website, online and there's contact information there and so you would want to start out by either emailing us or calling us and then we usually um you know give you information and when people live far enough away that they can't come for all their prenatal care with us then we have people get prenatal care where they live And I usually like to also hear from them from time to time during their pregnancy so that we're starting to develop that relationship. So um, people might come here for a visit early in their pregnancy to meet us, see our facilities, and see if this really is what they want to do. And then if if they decide that they do, then we – uh, talk on the phone, email with each other at least once a month during their pregnancy. And then at the end of the pregnancy, anywhere from maybe 37 weeks, 38 weeks, people move here. And we have houses on the farm that we call birth houses, that that's all they get used for. And 
They have everything you need to live in while you're here. There's bedrooms and bathrooms and laundry facilities and kitchen. And that's where you give birth. So you get settled in, (laughs) start feeling like it's your home away from home, and then continue your prenatal care with us. So that's another opportunity to bond and, and spend time talking about what what labor's like and what are some of the things that can help when you're in labor. I live on the farm. We have some of our midwives. We have six midwives practicing here. And, um, you know, that includes Pamela Hunt, who was on the caravan. It was one of those women who had her first baby. She was had her first baby, was one of the first ten. And... Um, and then we have some midwives who live close by. But um, since I live right here on the property, I'm like two minutes away from all those birth houses. So when I have somebody in labor, I can go and check on them, you know, listen to the baby, check their blood pressure, see how they're handling labor. If it's still early labor, I might tell her to go for a walk. There's, we have 1,750 acres here. There's lots of, of places that, that people can walk, and walking is a good way to get labor going or help it progress. And then um, I may tell her to call me in a couple hours unless things speed up and she needs to call sooner, and then I'll come back over and check the baby's heartbeat, see how she's doing, you know, I want her to let me know if the water breaks or there's any, you know, changes like that. And as soon as she's in good active labor and she feels like she needs somebody there all the time, you know, she's not comfortable on her own anymore, then we're there. And we'll stay there probably till after the baby's born. So that really works nicely for me, but I also think it works nicely for her. Yeah. And, you know, people tell us that while they're here, those last weeks of their pregnancy, it's kind of their baby moon or, you know, it's, if it's their first child, then it's that couple's um, last time of being just two people before they welcome this new person into their family. If they already have children, it's still it's very similar. There's going to be a new person coming into the family, changing the dynamics, requiring lots of attention. So it's it's a chance to enjoy that um, time together before this big change happens. It's also very peaceful here on the farm. And because almost everybody you're going to encounter on the farm had babies here, there's a lot of encouragement from the community, um, a lot of people wishing you well and maybe telling the pregnant women their positive birth stories. And that's something I, I believe very strongly in, that you should only tell pregnant women positive birth stories and that if anybody tries to tell you something negative, just stop them and let them know that you're not interested and and then walk away. <laughs> You know, surround yourself when you're pregnant with positive people and, you know, positive uh, energy. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the farm certainly has that. I mean, just from when I think of my time there, it was September. It was beautiful. It was hot. Um, but it's so peaceful. And if a woman's choosing to have her baby, they're coming there at 37, 38 weeks. She's removed herself from her normal life. And so it's really an opportunity to shed all that stress and anxiety and just kind of embed herself in this unfolding, you know, the last bit of her pregnancy, being in the community and just relishing in the the quietness. I think that really changes. I just remember feeling like this heavy coat was taken off when I was walking around there. I could just breathe and see the vastness. And I think that would be so wonderful for a pregnant mom at the end of, of that journey. So we'll definitely put all of this on our show notes so people, if they're interested, they get inspired. Do you have any final tips or advice for someone looking to have a physiological birth that may not be able to come down to the farm? Well, I think it's good for women to trust their inner knowing, you know, trust their instincts, look for like-minded healthcare providers, whether that's a midwife or a doctor. I think it's helpful to have a doula at your birth. Sometimes family members can serve that role. Sometimes the midwife also serves that role. Um, And like I said, surround yourself with people that are positive. Listen to positive birth stories. You know, you can read, read, there's lots of good books and, and things that you can, um, can read that are helpful. I think learning about what makes the oxytocin flow and, you know, and, and talking to your partner about that. And, you know, everybody is different. We, we really try to give individualized care to people. And, and so some people are going to maybe embrace some things um, in different ways than others, but find, find what is going to work for you. You know, it's, it's okay to kind of get primal <laughs> when you're in labor. You know? It's invited actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's actually good. You know, I've seen some really fabulous YouTube videos of these women who are just getting down, you know, they're, they're dancing and, and everything. And that, that's great. It, it helps to move and it helps to loosen you up. And mm-hmm. I think it helps to laugh mm-hmm. when you're in labor. So, you know, if you, if you know someone who is good at making you laugh, that might be somebody you'd want to invite to birth. We've had women sometimes say some pretty funny things. Uh, I remember one woman, she was, it was her first baby and she was about eight centimeters and she looked at us and she said, well, you all can stay here and keep doing this. And my body can stay here and keep doing this, but I'm leaving. <laughs> and that made everybody laugh. So sometimes it's the pregnant woman who, who makes everybody laugh. You know? And it wasn't long after that that she went through transition and was ready to push. Um, I, re- I remember another woman who was also having her first baby and she seemed to be struggling some of with dealing with the contractions and and maybe fighting them a little bit. And finally, it was like something clicked and she realized that fighting it was not helping. <laughs> and she just sort of looked down at her belly and said, oh, go ahead and hurt. 
<laughs> yeah, surrender. It's a big thing. Yes. Absolutely. I did that. And I remember walking out during yeah, during my first birth in right around transition. I walked into the living room and I said to my midwife, I'm like, I don't know who I'm trying to prove, what I'm trying to prove. I'm done with this. And I just kind of gave up and like, all right, let's just do it. But I do think most women hit that hit that wall and just have to yeah. give in and be like, let's just ride this wave. Well, I, I so enjoyed coming down for the midwifery assistant program. Are you guys still offering that? Oh yes, we are. Okay. Yeah. We, we still do several workshops a year. We have the main one that we do is the assistant workshop, but we also have, um, an advanced one that we do usually just once a year because we don't, that one doesn't fill up as much. Mm-hmm. And we're also teaching the neonatal resuscitation course. Yeah, I love teaching. I love the workshops. We meet so many wonderful, you know, women that are doing great things. The the women who come to the workshops usually get fairly bonded with each other. Yeah, and I'm then still in touch with some of them. You are. That's yeah. great. I mean, through yeah. Facebook, but we're still in right. touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the common way to do it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I so enjoyed my time there and I've enjoyed my time here. Is there any final thing you want to say before we end? Well, yes. I think that sometimes when people read spiritual midwifery um, or any of our other books about childbirth that, you know, because we want to tell those positive stories and, and paint a positive picture that, that maybe women think that, it's a piece of cake. You know, it's, it's going to be so easy. And, um, while I have seen some women have an orgasmic birth, it's probably more rare than, you know, not everyone achieves that. And that, and so I'm starting to tell the people that I take care of that, um, you know, this is going to be work and, it may be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life, but it is worth it. You know, I remember after I had my first baby, I felt like I could whip the world with one hand tied behind my back. <laughs> That's how empowered I feel, felt. And, you know, and I think childbirth is hard for a reason. It's it's because what you work for, hard for, you appreciate and you take good care of. And, you know, in our culture, we tend to, think that pain is like the worst thing in the world that you should avoid at all costs. Yet people are willing and women are willing to work very hard to perform in athletics, maybe run a marathon or something like that. And, and that one is like no pain, no gain. So if we can do pain in one, um, in, in sports, then um, we can, you know, we're strong. We can handle a lot. And, you know, we don't have to treat women in labor like, oh, you poor baby, this is the worst thing ever. It, it can be that, um, that thing that you feel proud about that's maybe you're, you becoming a woman. You know, you're not a girl anymore. Now you're a woman. You know, we don't have those rites of passage right. that some tribes used to have and that you know you may also find out that you can do something you never thought you could do 
and that I, I've seen women change in labor. I've seen somebody like those stories I was just telling the woman who said, "Oh, let it hurt." You know, I've, I've it is possible to go through a transformation when you are having a baby, and those are those are times of growth. Mm-hmm. You know, those are things that um, are good things about life, and women don't need to deny themselves that experience. You know, I, I thought having a baby was some of the most wonderful times of my life. And I'm so glad I got to do it. I, and I wouldn't have, wouldn't trade it in for anything, but, but I think it helps for people to go into it, expecting that it's going to be hard, expecting that it might push them to the edge of what they feel like they can do, but it's not going to push you into something you can't do. You know, you can do it. Oh, your, your admiration and belief in birth is just beautiful. And I could just see just like, as we're talking, just like the glow in your face of how much you believe in this is just, I'm so glad to have this chance, not just talk to you, but for other women to hear this and be inspired by this. And yeah, I remember running into a woman and she was really taken back when we said that, you know, labor's hard. She's like, don't say that. I'm like, but it's true. But it doesn't mean you can't do it. So on that note, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your words and your inspiration and the work you do and the work all the midwives at the farm do. It's it's amazing. So thank you for coming on tonight. And I'll shoot you an email when this is coming out and so you can listen to it. Okay. Too. So all right. <laughs> I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you so much. Oh, um, you're welcome. And thank you. All right. Good night. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.